Let's talk about safe supply because it is, I think, uh, and should be a huge issue for this election because we either go bigger on it or get it into control. And up until recently, we couldn't even question this, right? And I don't think you can ignore the experiment because it's just ravaging cities across this country, certainly. Uh, Toronto is falling to this and proponents insist it is saving lives. But then we got this National Post, this 45-minute read, months of investigation revealing that Safe Supply, which is being given to addicts, paid for by us, is getting resold onto the streets. So they go get their Safe Supply, then they go sell it. They go buy themselves some dirty, awful, cheaper fentanyl. And what's happening is the dealers are getting a lot of new customers, kids as young as 11. It's very big in the schools. They know the Safe Supply is easy to get. It's cheap, 5 bucks, 10 bucks a hit. So we've got this whole new generation of addicts. And, you know, this is supposed to be about compassion and saving lives. But the addicts are growing in numbers. The deaths are piling up. And I think there is plenty to question. Let me bring in Adam Zevo, National Post columnist who did all this investigative work back in Toronto. Are you here to stay for a bit? Uh, I'm here until the end of July and then back abroad for another three months. There you go. All right. It's um, it's incredible what you have revealed, and it certainly got quite a reaction. No question about it. The uh, liberal minister on this, Carolyn Bennett, was outraged by it. Those who are advocates outraged by it. Uh, what's the reaction been like over the last few weeks since you um, you know, opened this conversation? Uh, I mean, it's been intense. I think for many people, it confirmed many of their suspicions about the program. Unfortunately, Safer Supply advocates and their allies... Uh, have been infuriated and are now launching a counter-campaign to try to, I guess, undermine these new revelations and to discredit them to some extent. Uh, many of the arguments that they're using are a little bit questionable and highlight many of the uh, flaws within Safer Supplies research. But unfortunately, that counter-campaign seems to be getting some traction in some places. And I think it will, because there will always be those who think that this is the approach to use. Um, but I thought it was interesting that you, you take the story in a new direction following it with the father uh, of someone. And I've got other listeners who have lost children uh, to, to addiction and, and drugs. And, yeah, they're going to the streets because they know they can get it. They go out and they find what they call dillies. Um, but it's it, the kids know where this is. And, and, and you had a father who blamed the safe supply you know, ultimately for killing his daughter or leading to the addiction. Yeah, so uh, I interviewed just about two, two three weeks ago uh, this guy named Greg Sword. So he's based mm -hmm. out of the Vancouver area. And his daughter, Camilla, died of an overdose. And the coroner verbally confirmed that she had hydromorphone, cocaine, and MDMA in her blood. But he hasn't received the written report yet. But addiction physicians have said that based on that cocktail, it's almost guaranteed that the hydromorphone is what killed her. Uh, I interviewed her close friends. They all confirmed that they were securing hydromorphone from homeless people in downtown Vancouver who would just lie to pharmacies and say that they needed the free hydromorphone to get off of harder substances. So it was very well known that the hydromorphone was being sourced from Safer Supply. And every girl who I interviewed, you know, all of them are around 15 years old, confirmed that daily abuse is ubiquitous in their community. 
Yeah, I mean, we just had um, uh, the producer and director of Canada dying, uh, who spent uh, a significant time uh, kind of trailing through and showing what it looks like in Vancouver. And he spoke about the pharmacists who are part of a kind of well-oiled machine in, in getting prescriptions. I mean, there there are those who will um, use this as a, to, you know, in nefarious ways. I don't think we can deny that. And yet so many people are willing to turn another cheek and, and simply insist, Adam, that this is working and we've got to stay on this. Um, and so, look, the next con- the, the, the election on the 26th, I think, is going to be incredibly consequential for this city because either we're going to stay the course and someone like Olivia Chow will go all in on this. I don't know how this city looks like in two years if we keep expanding it. Or you're going to get a candidate. Um, well, Anthony Fury says he'll stop it and move to treatment. But even even talking about treatment is like a third rail. For some reason, this is really offensive. And I don't understand. I don't understand why people don't look at safe supplies, the Band-Aid in the goal of getting to treatment, isn't that where we should be going? Or is the idea from the advocates to do this forever? Because it's not sustainable. Well, the thing is that many safer supply advocates claim that safer supply saves lives and that it targets people who won't respond well to traditional treatments, uh, such as methadone. But the problem, you know, as my, as my reporting has shown, is that the very people who are most heavily addicted to opioids, fentanyl users, don't respond well to safer supply either. So the very people who are supposedly having their lives saved are the people who are least likely to benefit from free hydromorphone and the most likely to sell it on the streets to children. It's or eventually die. Yes. And, and the thing is that the safer supply advocates continue to insist that this is all evidence-based, but it is not. So the evidence-based in support of safer supply is incredibly poor. The vast majority of it is small qualitative studies, uh, which... What that means is essentially uh, semi-structured interviews with Vancouver-based drug users who, you know, unsurprisingly say that this program is working great and there is no Mm -hmm. attempt to validate the accuracy of what they're saying or to check for bias. I mean, someone who has a strong financial incentive to say that safer supply works because they're selling the drugs on the street, of course they're going to say this is great and there's no attempt to actually objectively measure safer supply's impact. Yeah, and it's interesting because Danielle Smith uh, now has a second term. There was concerns because the I think it's the Alberta Project or the Alberta, I think that's what it's called. It's a very interesting concept of how they're dealing with um, with uh, opiate addiction. They've built these communities essentially, and it's all supportive housing, and you're all together. It's it's a really interesting concept where they build like it's almost like a, a university campus with these dorms where you've got independence, you've got security, you've got treatment. It's like one stop shop, and you actually have you know, a life that you're building as you get on your feet. You've got full supports for a year. And only, I think, because she's got a second term, will we start to actually see data come out that can back up whether or not it's working? Well, so this is known as the Alberta model. And the Alberta model, oh, the model is heavily yeah. focused. Yeah, yeah it, it's heavily focused on recovery. And it takes, a third, it takes a third way in between these two extremes. So on one extreme, you have the 1980s-style war on drugs, where drug use mm-hmm. was heavily criminalized. And what that did is just, you know, throw an entire generation of people, predominantly from marginalized communities, into jail with no apparent benefit. And then you have this hyper-permissive, hyper-progressive approach, which basically just enables drug use and gives people free drugs in a form of, you know, palliative care, essentially, just assuming that they're never going to be able to recover and just enabling them to kill themselves. Uh, The Alberta model is adopted from the Portuguese model, where you have decriminalization, but it's not actual decriminalization in that people are sent to diversion courts uh, where they are kept out of the criminal justice system. They're reviewed by a, like a, a small committee 
which includes a social worker, a psychiatrist, and a lawyer, and then they are pressured to go into treatment. So they aren't they aren't saddled with a criminal record, but they aren't you know given uh, they're still held accountable for their actions. Plus, they also don't have safe supply, and that's a big thing that people forget about Portugal. It's they don't use safe supply; they really direct it towards treatment. And, and the guy that developed the Alberta model was an addict, and and he turned his life around. And that's he feels that this approach is is nece- is really going to work. So, where do you where do you go with this investigation next? Because I do think at the federal level, certainly we've heard Polly ever talk about it. It will be an issue. It should be an issue. So I'm. Had a bit of a, I have a bit of a barrier here, and, and this has been a huge issue, is that addiction medicine experts are terrified to speak out about this because they're concerned about professional retaliation. One of my interviewees almost that, That's the country we live in now, eh? Crazy. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. But, for example, you know, I was just on the phone with an addiction, uh, medicine, uh, an addiction expert last night, and they refused to go on the record uh, because they were concerned that their, one of their family members who's on the board of a large, you know, public nonprofit uh, could be targeted. You know, there's mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, so on my end, you know, my goal is to focus on the people who have been harmed by safer supply diversion. So uh, teenagers who have gotten addicted, their families, and to show the human face and the human cost of this crisis to create a political climate where it's easier for addiction medicine experts to speak out about this and go on record. Don't give up. I know it's a tough conversation to have. I know the blowback is fierce, but uh, I don't want to live in a country where people can't speak out concerns. We went through that with COVID, and it's absolute nonsense with these witch hunts. So we'll continue to talk. Adam, very much appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. That is Adam Zebo, who uh, is looking into this, as we should. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that those who disagree with this can't speak out. This is the country we live in now. Just like in COVID, where we put all our money on the Ryan Ingrams and they have all the say. And, well, lo and behold, look where we are now. But give me a break.